Well, I appreciate uh, Dennis. Um, I'm careful not to say Denny. Someone mentioned something to me about, you know, did, I don't know anybody named Denny, but I know someone named Pastor Dennis. So I really appreciate Pastor Dennis and Kathy for their hospitality and their, their kindness and love to us in Christ uh, for having us while we're here because we're really big eaters and we'll eat them out of house and home, <laughs> as you can tell, in the flesh, baby. No, I'm just kidding. All right. So, all right. So here, uh, be careful. I have some fun sometimes. But... Um, but I ask that question because um, I'm asking a question because too often in my heart, I ask myself, what's my heartbeat? What moves me every day? Um, I ask you that question. What is your heartbeat each day? So when you wake up in the morning, do you reach for your phone? Do you grab it and try to get into the world that is around you? Try to get into your device so you can join the world. Um, some people do, they do. Others, they get up and they're just like crawling out of bed, coffee, and they want coffee and they're ready to push the button on their, or you, you know, you probably go to Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts. How many fans are Dunkin' Donuts fans? Okay, all right, that's good. You're on my team. All right, Starbucks. I see Dunkin' wins. Okay, I didn't think that. Okay, all right, so uh, you might be one of those um, that you need that coffee to function. And then other of you, other of you's, you know, you might, you might be grabbing a remote, a TV remote, and looking for your channel, your news channel, to find out what's going on in your news today. On the spot, we're able to determine or find out what's happening. And so we... We're often asking that question because what is our heartbeat? Well, I, I like to eat. Um, I enjoy it in my culture. And I like to have, usually on Sunday mornings, I don't like to have breakfast because of the Sunday morning and the, you know, I don't want to weigh myself too far down. But in, during the week, I enjoy a good breakfast. But I'm teaching a course over at Lancaster Bible College. And I have, when I teach, I teach four-hour intervals five weeks in a row. So when we get to know the students, there's, I try to create a community base for those five weeks. So the first class I have, unlike any other professor, I give the chance for each student to share a little bit about themselves. Now, they're non-traditional students. They usually work throughout the day. They have careers, but they come at night. Some are traditional students that come and decide to take a class at, in the evening. And uh, so uh, each one... The first class, it all depends how far it goes. It can go into an hour and a half, everybody's sharing. And mind you, these students work together, and they're usually in classes together throughout the program. So I want to get to know them a little bit. Well, there was one particular student who, um, she was sharing about herself and her career, and she goes, you know, I, I'm a pastry chef. And then she, you know, she continued to go on and on about this information. And I got to be honest, I said, I said Tracy... You got me at pastry chef. I forgot what else you said. And everybody started busting out laughing. I said, if you would be, would you so mind if you maybe would bless us with your ability sometime in class, I would love it. Cha-ching, A plus, cha-ching, A plus. But here was the thing. We were blessed. The following week, she brought out some cheesecakes, these little pumpkin and lime cheesecakes and these nice little cubes so you can just kind of pop them in your mouth. And I said, and that's, that's something that started to like, ting, 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 ting. my heart was beating. Even though I don't even like cheesecake, it was incredible. And then this past week, she brought leftover cake from Easter, coconut cake. So it was incredible. But I say that because I have some fun to say that what's really, really working in your heart, what's making your heart beat. I looked up an article 
from live science. And not to get too, uh, too involved in the medical terms here, but there's one particular section that talked about um, maximum target heart rate. And as I was reading through the article, they were showing how each of us, the, the beats per minute in our heart, you would take 220 minus your age, and you would work within 50 to 85% of the beats per minute of your heart rate. That's your maximum target heart rate. So when you're working out, you're trying to, or you're just taking care of children, or whatever you're doing, whatever is activity that's in your life, you want to be at your best target heart rate. And so I read this excerpt, and I just appreciate it. It says, knowing your heart rate during workout sessions can help know whether you are doing too much or not enough. When people exercise in their target heart zone, they gain the most benefits and improve their heart's health. When your heart rate is at the target zone, you know you're push, you are pushing the muscle to get stronger. I was, I was thinking about that because I said, what is the target heart rate for the church? Where can we be at our maximum target heart beating movement? Where is that zone? And I think about that often because we have this society where, and I was reading a book called Welcome to Gen Z, and what was happening to meet Gen Z, Generation Z, and there's... Two, there's three different uh, works here. There's different people groups. There is a, the left side, 25% are secularists. On the 25% over here are Christians. In the middle, the 50%, they didn't know what to call them. Um, they began to realize in our society today, because I am a generation, um, I'm a generation X. I'm just after the baby boomer. Then there's a millennial, and then there's Gen Z. And so I was looking at that, and they say that this 50% in the middle are called the nuns. Not, not a Catholic nun, but N-O-N-E-S. Because they're being pulled from the secularist and hopefully being influenced by the Christian. But they're the nuns group because they're not sure what category they're leaning toward with reference to God. And the church has to find their maximum target heart rate or their zone to be able to reach this 50%. Now, as a church, we want to reach that 50%. I know I'm getting a little bit older, but I want to be relevant church. I want to reach people who are far away from God. I want us to reach our neighborhoods. I want us to reach the people in our workplaces. I want us to influence the people that I know I can't influence because I'm not engaging with those people that you are that I can't. But you can make a difference, and we have to equip and train the people of God to be able to reach this group. We have to start saying to ourselves, how are we going to reach this new generation, the Generation Z? How am I going to be relevant and change myself? I'm not saying that I have to change and be like them, but how can I influence them? And see, this is the work that's happening in our hearts because James Emery Wright writes this book, Meet Generation Z, and he's highlighting the importance of this is how can we reach our maximum target heart rate. Well, I want you to open up your Bibles to Timothy, 1 Timothy. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about Paul and Timothy, 
because Paul was a man who had a heartbeat for God. But his circumstances not always looked well. I mean, his circumstances were trying and difficult. He was suffering just as Christ did, but he was an example for the kingdom of God. But when he was working, he was walking on earth, he would travel thousands of miles to proclaim the gospel. But he also proclaimed something within 1 Timothy of the importance of what the church should be. And so when he had um, this set up here, he was, he was writing this book. We understand that even in the scholars and the dating of the book was around 62, 64 AD was just after his, his first imprisonment, was just after Acts 28 as we would understand. And so here he was writing, but he was going to visit Ephesus where Timothy was a pastor. Paul was an overseer, a church planner, but he was planting in pastors and leading them and create, he was an overseer for those particular elders and leaders and pastors. And so he's He's got a protege named Timothy. And he's writing out in Timothy's giving us the specific purpose in the book of why he's writing. Keep your finger in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and just go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. It says, I, I love to hear the pages turn, and thank you. That's a sweet smelling, or sweet smelling, but sweet hearing sound. Um, I, I, it goes on here, it says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, in order that, a purpose clause, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Household in the Greek word, okidormein, means the management or the stewardship of the household of God. So it's not how we do church on Sunday mornings, it's how we steward the, word of, the, the truth of the word of God and how we lay it out and how we place forth the doctrines and how we allow God to work in our lives to reach those around us. The gathering together is to worship God, but the management and the stewardship goes further than the four walls. And so Paul is highlighting this to Timothy, who's protege, who's a pastor, because he's a young man and he's about to lead the people of God in Ephesus. And these were house churches that were coming together. But in uh, verse 15, he goes on to say this, which is the church, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar, a buttress of the truth. And we understand too, because in Acts 15, when they had the Jerusalem council and they were moved by the power of the Holy Spirit and they were going from Jerusalem and they were going to Samaria and Judea and then going to the outermost parts of the world, they saw Jerusalem council as a way of, of making sure what the truth was and its doctrine, that it's by grace through faith, not adding to the law. But when the Pharisees were coming and they were teaching, they wanted to add to the law. So Paul was trying to tell Timothy, I know you have Judaizers around you. I know that you have people who are following the law, believing that righteousness is attained through keeping the law. But Paul said, wait a minute, it's by grace through faith. And we have the truth. And the truth of the gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not adding the law. Because one cannot attain righteousness by keeping the law because the law is holy, but it can't be. It's a tutor for sin, the Bible says, as Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. But as we see this, we even go further in verse 16 of chapter 3. It says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness, this truth. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. That's theology. 
And he's highlighting this to saying, this is the truth in which we're established and founded on. And as the word of God, we need to find out what is Paul saying to Timothy? Let's go back to chapter 1, verse 3, because this is important. Because he goes on to say this in chapter 3, or chapter 1, verse 3. It says, I urged you when I was calling, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. The word charge is a military term in the Greek. But what he says in urge, the word urge is parakaleo in the Greek, which is a discipleship term. He's saying, as an apostle in position, I'm urging you not only in position as an authority over you, I'm urging you because I have a relationship with you. He's discipling him. He's coming along. So parakaleo means to come alongside of, and it means to encourage and exhort. When you create that relationship with another person, you're able to minister to them in a way that no other person can. I can't reach the person that you can reach. I can't disciple the person that you're going to disciple. He's doing that with Timothy. He's not just using his position for leverage. He's using his influence through relationship. That's where discipleship happens. That's an important thing because that's the purpose of the church. To what? To make disciples. So Paul's laying this out, and he's talking to Timothy Because there were people with different doctrines, specifically those who believed that keeping the law or even going into other things that were devoting themselves to where it says later in myths and genealogies, promoting speculations rather than stewardship, oikodome, from God, that is by faith. But he goes on in verse 12. And he's highlighting the specifics of why he thinks it's important to reach the people in his area. If you and I want to reach this new generation, we as a church have to hold, I believe, to what Paul is saying to Timothy. Five things here that is so important, that's foundational according to the truth in the the word of God. So number one, if we can, number one is calling to salvation. If you have your worship guides and you have an outline there, number one is calling to salvation. Now, bear with me. We have a lot of scripture here, so I'm going to hear those pages turning because we have to see what the scriptures are saying. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 says, I thank him, Paul is speaking to Timothy, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's thanking the Lord Jesus, God himself, the Lord Jesus has given him strength. Now, there's specific words in this passage right here in verse 12 that are in the aorist tense that means a single event, something that occurred just that one time, but yet has carried him throughout his walk with God. Here's one of those words, strengthened. It's seven times in the New Testament he uses, and it means to cause one to function. So when Paul was struggling and going through difficult times, God strengthened him. When he was almost being being killed at times, when he was being, you know, just mistreated, God strengthened him. When he was carrying himself through all those many, many miles to proclaim the gospel in the three missionary journeys, God was strengthening him in his relationship. Number two, here's what we see in this verse. It says, because he judged me faithfully. Another version, it says, considered me. And that word in the Greek, is it, it gives the idea of to engage in an intellectual discussion. You might see reckon in another version. But he's recognizing what God has done for him. 
It's not as though he's intellectually figuring it out on his own, but God has given him the ability to see this salvation that he's calling him to. So he's calling him to a salvation, and he understands that that's what's carrying him through these difficult times. And then it goes on to say this, that because he judged me faithfully, appointing me to his service. Now, appointing is a key word here because it's, it's an aorist tense, but it gives the idea that God is doing the appointing. It's not as though he appointed himself to a position. It's not as though, it's kind of like when I say to my children, God placed me in this position as your father. God placed your mother in that position. We're an authority of, you know, given by God. He appointed us. Um, you have one mother. My mother used to say, oh, you have only one mother. Um, and I regret sometimes thinking that because I used to walk away and laugh a little bit. She has passed, but it's true that God has appointed us. So when a child says, I don't understand, God's appointed me here. That doesn't give you leverage to lord it over them and use that as manipulation, parents. It doesn't mean you provoke your children to anger. It simply means that when God appoints us in a position in some manner, that we are there because God's given us that. He can't take it away. Well, with Paul, he was appointed by God. We're all appointed by God that when we're saved, when we're called in salvation, we're appointed to do something for the kingdom of God. It's not enough just to be saved, but it should be enough for us to proclaim the gospel to someone. We have to share the gospel with whom is around us. So Paul's called to that. But he also says this, faithful. That's a key word too. Because it says pertaining to be worthy or trustworthy. It wasn't those. Paul was worthy in and of himself to be able to do it. He recognized in his mind, intellectually recognizing it was God's work in him, that God has appointed him, called him, that it was God's work through his son, Jesus Christ, and now he's calling him to be faithful to that which he is. But we and I can't be faithful unless the power of the Holy Spirit is working in us. The reason why Paul was able to get through all those missionary journeys, the three of them, and travel thousands of miles because it was the power of the Holy Spirit, the agent that was working through the book of Acts that was challenging him to work through those difficult times. It was God and God alone, but he was faithful to the call and so important to us as well. In Acts 9, 15, it says this, but the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake and for of my name. And that word chosen is election. That's the Greek word. God chose him for a specific task. Let me ask you, do you ever think that when God called you to salvation, he's called you to a specific task? He has appointed you for something. You might say, I don't know. I don't see it. Have you prayed about it? Have you asked God specifically, Lord, give me an opportunity? Give me that opportunity to share Christ with someone Give me that opportunity to be a witness to someone in my neighborhood. Give me an opportunity to witness to my family members. Give me an opportunity to be able to share with someone. See, when we ask God to do that work, will he not grant it? Because we're called to it. He's equipped us, everything pertaining to life and godliness, and all we need to do is know that we're called to it. Paul was called to it. He reasoned in the synagogues. He even reached and tried to reach the Jews before he got to the Gentiles. He was mangled and beaten up, but yet he continued the call. Two, you have to know there's another thing here. You've you got to be committed to service. Paul was committed to the service. I mean, look with me now in verse 12, because that last word in verse 12 is ministry, which is the Greek word for deacon. 
And deacons, what they do is they serve. It's not just a position. It's the purpose of it is to serve. How many of us, are we in the ministry to be served? Are we in the ministry to serve? When you and I come here or anywhere we go or where we're serving in a ministry, what's the purpose? What's the, if you're coming here to receive something or I'm coming here to receive something, we've got the wrong picture of ministry. Paul did never go to receive something from God. He was blessed by God to be able to give and to serve. He traveled all those miles because it wasn't something he was looking to receive, only to give. He already received what he needed. That was Jesus. Jesus was the one who filled his cup, and then he would go out and serve. Never should we come to church because we're looking for something to get. We should be challenged by God to say, God, ministry is others-oriented. It's not self-oriented. And that's what Paul was saying here. And it means that we're serving those. But how many of us are willing to serve those who mistreat us? How many of those that we know are not worthy of our time, we would say? God is saying, I'm calling you to serve. He's calling us to serve. And he called Paul to do so. He was committed to the very end of it. Even in verse 11 of 1 Timothy, we go back. He writes out, he goes, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. You know that word entrusted? It's not an active voice. It's a passive voice, which means God is doing the work through him. He's entrusted, called him faithful, and it's God's work through the vessel. We just have to surrender, submit, and allow him to do that work. And that's what service is about. He even says this in 1 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 7, he says, For this I was appointed as a preacher and apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. He was appointed for a purpose, just like in in verse 12 of chapter 1. But here's another verse that moves me. Every time, I've been doing this for up to 30 years, and every time I come across this passage I'm about to read, it still moves me. It gets me so excited because I still can't fathom Paul's mindset here. Look with me to Acts chapter 14, 19 through 22. This is where his heart, where he knew he was entrusted, he knew he was called, he knew he had a commitment, he knew that even though it was difficult that he had to do it. And this is what he said. Luke was writing, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went out with Barnabas to Derbe. When he had preached the gospel to that city, he had many disciples that returned to Lystra and Tyconium and to Antioch. Now, wait a minute. I got to stop there before I go to 22. This man went back to where he was almost killed. Now, I got to be honest with you. If someone pulled out a gun and almost tried to kill me and hit me right here in the shoulder, but I'm still alive after that, and I recover about three months or so later, and they go, okay, Brennan, we need you to go back into there. I'm like, uh-uh, I'm not going back. No, 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 you're not getting me to go back. That would be my attitude. My wife wouldn't let me go back. My kids would probably say, yeah, okay, Dad, we don't want you to go back. But I wouldn't go back. But what blows my mind is why would Paul go back? Why would Paul get up and go back? The commitment in his heart because he knew he was entrusted as a steward, orchidorme, in the management of the, of the truth of the word of God to go and proclaim the gospel wherever. 
He was called to it in Acts 9.15. And he goes back. And it's a commitment that says this later. It says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Encouraging, by the way, Pharaoh Parakaleo, strengthening the disciples. You and I need to be committed to the gospel so we can make disciples. We are relationally making disciples, leading people, encouraging them, exhorting them. But you and I can never do it unless God is entrusted in us to do that work. We have to know we're called of God and committed to the service to do forth and bring forth that commitment. So when it's hard and difficult at work, when you're tired and you don't want to talk to this person again, when you're tired of your boss, when you're tired of your neighbors, when you avoid your neighbors and say, let me turn around so he doesn't see me, I can go back in the house. Whatever the case may be, God's saying to each one of us, we have to be committed because we're entrusted with the gospel. That's the church. And that's what he was doing. Number three. All right, guys, let's settle oh, down. Bring it in. Got to go back. Number three. He has conviction of sin. I don't have that up there just yet, but conviction of sin. He has a conviction of sin. And in 1 Timothy 13, he says this. He goes, though formerly I'm a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Well, the word blasphemy means defaming, denigrating, and demeaning God's name. He admitted it. He knew that he was doing that in his prior life before Christ. 21 times Paul writes in his writings, persecute. He persecuted the church. He says it in Philippians chapter 3. And then he says he was an aggressor, an insolent man. He was an aggressor. He was putting not only people in jail, but having them killed. He was there when Stephen was martyred in chapter 7 of Acts. But God, what was so interesting, what he went on to say was, he goes, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. He acted ignorantly because he thought he was doing something good for God. He had a zeal for the law, a zeal for Judaism, a zeal for God. He thought he was doing God a favor by removing the people of the way, by putting them in jail and having Stephen martyred. He thought he was doing it. So ignorantly he's saying, I didn't know I was just zealous. But his passion carried him too far. Just because we're zealous and we're ignorant and we do unwillful sin, we're still accountable because it leads us to unbelief. It leads us to say no. It leads us and declines us away from God. And what happens is then when we go into unbelief, we're accountable before God. But he goes, I was shown mercy. That, that tense again is passive. God was showing him the mercy. See, he was using his past when he was reminded of his testimony as a leverage for his present circumstance. He was able to use that past to say, now God's convicting me to be used of him in an awesome way. He had this boldness to reach people. He had this boldness to go back where he was almost killed. He had a boldness to go into synagogues and, and reason with Jews when he knew the Jews weren't even going to receive Christ. He was willing all to the point where he was being persecuted for the kingdom of God. But here in America, persecution to us is just people making fun of us. And we're even afraid of that. We're afraid that if we mention Christ as someone, they're not going to talk to us anymore. And we're going to be alienated from them. It happens to us. It happens in family settings. I know when I get around families and they know I'm a pastor, they, 
they pull me away from the conversation because words are used that I don't want to be around or comments are being made. But how do I make a difference by reaching them and trying to connect with them and engage with them, the, whatever I can by being used of God? And I have to be. But I, as my conviction, I can share with them what God has done through me. Boldness comes from when we have conviction. Boldness comes when God is changing us and showing us mercy. I can't show mercy to someone else if God hasn't shown mercy to me. And if I don't understand that mercy, I won't be able to minister to someone else. You know, in a, in a story, uh, the Woodland film, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but the story has a backdrop of a true story where uh, in Woodland High School in 1973 in Birmingham, Alabama, there was uh, desegregation, there was controversy with um, the African Americans and the whites, the Caucasian whites that were trying to work together and play together um, during that time. Tony Nathan, who was... Uh, a player on the Dolphins who also played for Alabama. Uh, throughout his years, he was very successful. But during this time, they were having a difficult time integrating both the blacks and the whites together. And it was obviously causing uh, controversies. And again, from years past, we understand the history of it. But there was a coach by the name of Tandy Geralds who noticed that they weren't getting along, they weren't working together with all the, all the disunity that was occurring, and he asked for a motivational speaker to come in by the name of Hank Irwin. Now, he was a preacher, but he was asked just to motivate them. But he had a conviction. He was a man of God, and he had a conviction to speak boldly. And I just want to share with you this excerpt from the movie, just for just a moment. All right, guys, let's settle down. Bring it in. Guys, hey, hey, settle down. We have a motivational speaker here. You guys don't mind? Hey, guys. I got it. Good luck. Hey, everybody. My name's Hank. I'm not a coach, I'm not a teacher, I'm not a counselor. In fact, nobody asked me to come here today. I look at what happened this afternoon and I think, aren't you sick of it? I mean, I'm sick of it. I'm not even from here. But does this kind of thing happen so much that it just feels normal? I mean, you don't know me. You've never seen me before. But what would you say if I told you that 100% without fail, it doesn't have to be this way? Birmingham has seen nothing but hate for so long. It has lost its ability to believe. It's lost hope. Let me tell you what Jesus said. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the light. And that means something to me. Because I let it mean something to me. I'll tell you something else that seems crazy. Only it's not. I love you. I care about you. Each and every one of you. I care about what you've seen. I care about what you've been through. I care about your pain. So does God. Jerry. Thank you, Dad. 
loves you What's so going on? Much. I said five minutes. He's been here for an hour. We need to wrap this up. Tanya, hold up. In your place. I mean, I know this sounds crazy, but just give the guy a chance. We ain't got nothing else to lose. You don't know me, but I'm asking you anyway to stand up right now, right here, and make a decision. A decision to change, to forgive, to be forgiven. No matter what you've done, that's how much God loves you. I'm asking you to choose Jesus. Can you do that? Will you do that? With me. Right now. You know, that's what, we know the story too, that not only a revival started on that team, but a local team, there was a revival that happened the next following year with Hank, and now all of a sudden these two teams have a revival together, and then God changes the life of that coach. He gets saved and baptized, and then a movement happens because one man had a conviction. He had a conviction to present the gospel of Jesus Christ, to proclaim it in a setting where it was unlike to be done, in a high school setting. (laughs) Paul was willing to do that. This man was willing to do that. You and I are equipped to do that. We've been entrusted with the gospel. We're called to do that. God called Paul. He's calling us. The question is, where are we going to be able to find that out? Because that's that's where the conviction, I even wrote this, I said, our position of humility gives way to God's power to reach humanity. God humbled Paul. He humbles us so we can reach those who are far away from God, those who desperately need. That is the heartbeat of the church. We're the agent to reach the lost. We're to make disciples. We can't make disciples unless we evangelize. And we're not going to simply evangelize in this room. We're going to evangelize wherever we go. You can be equipped with the gospel. You can know how to share it. And you can make a difference by reaching someone that I can't reach or anyone else in this church can. And that's what we're called to. And that's what God is calling his people to do. But when we see and know that God has mercy on us, then we have compassion toward others. And that's what four is. Paul had that compassion. In verse 14, it says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love and that in Christ Jesus. What was a triad that happened in the persecution, in the blasphemous and aggressive way, God countered it with faith, love, and grace. By grace through faith, we have this love 
that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We have now through Christ that same love so we can love those who are unlovable, reach those who are unreachable, and forgive those who are unforgivable. When we see a story like this, we see that that man who first stood up saying, I'm willing to forgive. And then Tony Nathan, what he stood up was the next person who stood up, who played the character of Tony Nathan. He stood up saying, I'm willing to forgive. Because when the love of God so permeates us, when we have the mercy of God in us, when God shows us that mercy, we can't hold it back but to share it with someone else. When you fall in love with someone, are you telling everybody about it? When you love something, whatever it is, do you tell someone about it? Who are you telling Jesus about? When are we going to make a difference? We've got to be bold, but the conviction... That compassion comes when mercy is shown to us. Look what in verse 15 it says, the saying is trustworthy and and deserving, full of acceptance, a doctrine that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You'll see worst in another version. Worst is not even in the Greek, but he says I am first is in the Greek. But the emphasis of worst is that I am the first to be worst. And that's what we have to think about. Who wants to be first? Who, I want to be first. I want to be first. I mean, okay, you're the worst sinner. I don't want to be first. That's not fair, man. I'm going to go over here. I don't want to be, I'm going to be first over here. That's what God is saying. When we come to understand, when we know Christ, when we know mercy has been shown to us, then we know we're the worst of all sinners. If Paul says, I'm the worst, I'm saying, no, 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 Paul, not before me. Not because I want to be first, but because God has shown mercy. But God. But God. That's the mercy. And that's what God is doing here. Paul is saying that it's a life change in me, and I want to share that with you. The word save in there, we see it so often in the Bible, but it actually means in the Greek to save or preserve from transcendent danger or destruction. You and I are in a position of danger, being eternally separated from God. Don't you want to share that with someone else? Don't you want to share the greatest gift, the greatest love story? The one that I've never, ever, ever got when I found Jesus. You know, I got saved. Um, it, I got saved. And when I got saved, I had this. I, I was a good Catholic. I carried a Jesus chain, a keychain with Jesus with the crown on there. And I don't know why, but I just did. It was there. I used it. And I pulled out. Someone said, Bruno, man, I haven't seen you around. And you know where. And I said, well, you know, I found the new love. They said, oh, what's her name? I said, it's not a... It's not a she. They go, huh? I said, well, hold on, man. I said, hold on. I'm not going there. But listen, I want to show you my keychain. It was Jesus. Oh, man, you're a Jesus freak. I said, uh-huh. I'm a Jesus freak. It was three months in the Lord. I didn't know how to evangelize. I just said, his name is Jesus. See, I got him on my keychain. But what it was was I was willing to share it, even be a bit corny. And you know what? Um, they knew where I stood. And I was able to continue to witness for the kingdom of God. That's what compassion. This is where the mercy of God stands for each one of us. Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. See, it's only God who can justify the sinner. But he had to by sending his son. He had to, he had to be propitiation for our sin. He had to, by being the perfect sacrifice, to meet the demand of holiness. 
He had to. God can only justify. So you can't justify the sinner unless something's done for it. And then he declares them righteous because you and I will never become righteous or made righteous. We're declared righteous. It's a forensic term, meaning I'm guilty, but I'm declared innocent by God and God alone. And so that's what we see in the scriptures where it says that in Romans when Paul said, I'm justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That was to show God's righteousness, not one who kept the law, but to show righteousness through Christ because his divine forbearance has passed over my former sins. He was forbearing. He was patient with all those. And it says, and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, but God. And here's what God, and this is what Paul said. He goes, I'm indebted, in Romans 1.14, he goes, I'm indebted and obligated to the barbarian. Now, Greek is bad enough. When you get to barbarian, it's someone who is heinous throughout society. No one likes a barbarian. He says, I'm in debt to them. Now, I don't know about you, but I know when I'm in debt, I have to put a financial burden to myself saying, I've got to pay that debt off with God And what Paul, he's saying, I'm in debt to those who mistreat me. I'm in debt to those who are heinous in society. I'm in debt to those who no one accepts. I'm in debt with with them. I am eager to preach the gospel, he says in verse 15. So that's where that movement of compassion has to come. Compassion recognizes the need to share with others. Lastly here, It's compelling. We must be compelling examples for others. Verse 16 of chapter 1, 1 Timothy. But I received the mercy for this reason. Here's the purpose of why he was shown mercy. That in me, as foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. It's, you know, that that word example is where we get the word hypothesis. It's a pattern. It's a prototype. And it's patience is where he said, is one who God said, I'll be patient with you, Paul, so you can be patient with others. Paul can't be patient with Timothy unless he was first received patience by God. What gets me to be patient with others is when the Holy Spirit says, "Uh, yeah, I know, because you don't recall the sin in your life, right, Bruno? And I said, no, Lord, I forgot about that one. Okay, I must be patient. Or when we get a little hard as a parent and we're tough on our children, And God just whispers in my ear. And he says, so I shouldn't be patient with you, right? I said, no, Lord, I'm sorry. I need to be patient. Because he's called me to that. He called Paul. He calls you and I. So that we can be a light to those who can be saved. Let me share a story with you. Some years ago, uh, it's about 30 years ago now, a young man who just got saved living in Stanford, Connecticut, and we lived in a triplex. We had people upstairs. We owned the house. My parents owned the house, and we had someone downstairs. It was a mom and her son. And I had just gotten saved during that time when I was showing the Jesus thing. And so um, he was making fun of me. He was cursing at me, making fun of me, uh, calling me not just Jesus freak, but any other word outside of that. And I have to be honest with you. Where I come from, you only get the chance to say that once, and then you hit the floor. I'm not kidding you. I mean, fists were were going. But the Lord was, I'm sharing that with you because the Lord said, no, 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 you will not react that way. You will be patient with him. 
And I didn't understand, so I was being discipled by my pastor, and I had to talk it out with him. He goes, no, be patient, brother. This is a new life you have in Christ. You're not supposed to react that way. But I would go in the room and shake, but I was like, Lord, help me. Help me, Lord. I want to react. And God's saying, no, I have a plan. Just continue to trust me. So for months and months and months, he just continually badgered me, beat me up with words. And I just continue to cry out to God saying, God, give me the grace to say no, you know, not to do anything crazy and lose my ministry here or salvation here. I mean, not lose my salvation, but to lose my, my, my ministry here. And what happened was I was just struggling and struggling and struggling with that. And then um, about a few months after that time when I was really struggling, he was walking up the street and I was walking down the street and he's doing his laundry and he said, Bruno, can I talk to you? And I was like, oh, wow, no making fun of me. He wants to talk to me. Okay. All right, sure. Okay. Why don't you meet me up at the house about an hour? So we met and God, by his mercy and his grace, I led him to the Lord. When he came to Christ, I started going to Bible college. And back then we didn't have any internet. I was receiving, you know, letters in my little box and I got a letter and he went into the military and it says private Sealy. His name was Dennis. And, uh, and he wrote to me of his love for God. I mean, his passion. He was apologizing to me the way he treated me. And he was just on and on and on. I was praising God for it. I was like, wow, what, a, what an awesome thing. What an awesome story. What an awesome testimony. Well, about four years ago, his brother, his brother reaches out to me in Facebook. And I didn't know who it was at first. And he goes, hey, you know, Brown, if you remember me, I know my mom and my brothers live downstairs from your house. And I'm Dennis's brother. And I just want you to know if this is you or not. I said, it's me. He goes, I want to share a story with you. Because of your ministry with my brother, I came to Christ. My wife came to Christ. My children came to Christ. My father came to Christ. I was just sitting there in tears. I said, oh, my goodness. I recall those moments when I was ready to let go and forget who I was in Christ. And then lo and behold, I said, wow, incredible. I said, how about your mom? Did she come to faith in Christ? She goes, no, she, she didn't. She died 13 years ago. And it just moved me that God said to me, when you trust me and you're patient as I'm patient with you, I want to use you as an example, a compelling example to those who are far away because now he's able to reach those around him as well and make a difference for the kingdom of God. You know, that's what the church is. I really believe, as Paul was telling Timothy in this passage, that he says, you need to know your calling, Timothy, just like us. You need to know you're committed to the service. You're committed to ministry. You need to have that conviction of being reminded of who you are. You need to have that compassion of knowing as I've shown, God's shown mercy to me, I need to show it with others. And I think we need to be that compelling example because as God is patient with us, we need to be patient with others. And I believe that through those five things, we can really make a difference for the kingdom of God because it's relational discipleship. We're to make disciples. We don't just do church on Sunday mornings. We are to be the church. We are the church. And it's important for us to understand this isn't our church. This is God's church. This isn't something that we concocted. We didn't have the message ourselves. God brought forth the message. He saved us with the blood of Christ. And so we need to understand that we are his servants to serve others. And it's and it's something we have to continue to focus. One of the things I'm always saying to myself is I don't want people to be like me. I want them to like the Christ in me. And I think that that's what is so important. And I'm going to tell you something. Paul got it. Paul got it. See, we're not called to complain or criticize or condemn. We're called to be consistent, compassionate, committed followers of Christ. 
But I want to I want to pray for you. I want you to bow your heads for just a moment. Um, I'm going to ask uh, Courtney and the team to come up for just a moment. I'm going to do something a little bit different. I think. I just sense that there's someone in this room that needs to come to Christ. Um, this is probably so out of what you guys are accustomed to, and that's okay, um, because I'm going to ask Courtney and the team to just play very lightly and slowly here. But I was praying earlier, and I just sense there's someone in here that needs to come to Christ. Um, and I want to pray for you. I want to ask Pastor Dennis to come up, just to stand up here, and... I don't know who it is, but I want to pray for you. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you would be so bold to trust that God has a plan for you, the gospel has been presented to you through the, through the word of God and truth. Jesus died on the cross for sin. He died a perfect death to meet the demands of the Father so that you and I have an opportunity to come to faith. He can wipe away our sins. He can forgive us of our sins and offer us the assurance of eternal life. I grew up in a Catholic church where I heard the gospel, but I really didn't receive it. But when I received it at 20 years old, it changed my life. It, you think I'm on fire now. I was a lot more on fire even back then. And I can tell you that it changed my life and turned me around. But I still believe there's someone in this room. I don't know who it is. I just sense in my heart there's someone that needs to know Christ. And so I want, as your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed, and I mean that, eyes closed, no one looking around. I want, if you know you need to trust in Jesus, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to confess your sin and admit that he, you need him to be saved. For, I want you to just quickly slip your hand up. I'm just, I'm just looking, no one else. Slip your hand up if there's someone here. No one's looking, thank you. Um, is anybody else? I sense there's someone else in this room. There's someone else that, d d no one else is looking, just me, because I want to pray for you. Is there anyone else? Just slip up your hand really quick. Okay, I want to pray for you. And for the one who slipped up his hand, I'm going to ask him to come up in a moment after we're finished up. To, I want Pastor Dennis to pray for him. So I want to pray for you right now. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you encouraged me today by the power of the Holy Spirit that there was someone in this room that needed to know you. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to tug on the hearts of these people here in this room to help them see how awesome you are. You're the one who saves. You're the one who transforms a life. You're the one who gives them eternal life and gives them joy and peace and hope and the assurance that when they pass from this life, they'll be in your presence. God, I thank you for what you're already going to do in advance. And I pray as you continue to do that work, move in our hearts today uh, to challenge us today as we love you and we surrender our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.